Good morning. For those of you who are uh, on time challenged, I'm David Robinson. We talked about that early in the service. Make, make it quick for you. Jimmy's got COVID. Uh, Axe Church, I'm the pastor at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington, and used to be here uh, as, uh, as a member with you all. know many of you, and uh, our church has gone under a, a flood problem. And so for the next three weeks, Jimmy and I are going to be uh, doing, some, doing some preaching, uh, getting into the word about who we are as a church. And today we're going to talk about who we are as a church in the culture. Um, tried to find something that Washington and Tennessee have in common this year. Both the Washington Huskies and the Tennessee Vols are in the top 10 at the end of the year in football, so that's good, right? You guys Vols fans at all? I mean, okay. I mean, you're not very excited about it. <laughs> Let's be honest, it hasn't been great. This year was pretty good, right, for you guys. All right. There's a question I want you to ask yourself. How should we, as the church, engage with the culture? What are we supposed to do as the church when it comes to the culture? I want you to just start marinating that thought in your mind because the Bible has something to say about it as we go through what we're going to go through here in the Scripture today. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, thank you for this worship team that does pour out their praise to you with us and leads us in worship, the dedication, Lord. Thank you for Pastor Jimmy and how dedicated he is, how much he loves your people here at True Life Church, Lord. Uh, I, I, I pray that you would put in their hearts an, an understanding and a knowledge of how much love you've given him for them and the other elders of this church who just love these people. And I pray that they would continue to care for them and to serve them faithfully. Lord, thank you for honoring me by letting me be here with my brothers and sisters in Tennessee. Um, I, I look forward to the day when all of us will be in heaven together, some with weird accents and some without, but we'll all be there together, Lord, and we thank you for that. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So how, how are we supposed to interact with the people around us? Culture is really just a description of how we live. How do we live? I'll give you an example. So in, in, in Washington, that thing that you open the drawers out and you get clothes out of, we call that a dresser. It's called a dresser because you use it to dress. Makes sense? In Tennessee, I've heard a number of people call it a chester drawers. Not a chest of drawers, which would be fine. We'd be fine with that in Washington. A oh, chest of drawers, that makes sense. But a chester drawers, as if it's a dude, right? <laughs> chester drawers. I don't know. There's a lot of those. I could go on for a while, but I'll give you one more. When we're in the grocery store and we're putting items in, in that thing you put items in, we call it a shopping cart. You all call it a, a buggy. Why wouldn't you, right? <laughs> Clearly, makes perfect sense. It's a buggy. How we communicate, how we talk, that's part of culture. It's part of culture. Uh, it includes a lot of things, including things like what kind of behaviors do we accept? What do we think is acceptable or even normal? That's probably a more accurate way to think about culture in general. How do we talk? How do we dress? What do we eat? How do we interact with one another? What do we, what do we think is okay? How do you define a family? Culture has something to say about that. How do you define a woman or a man? Culture has something to say about that. Lately, they've been a little off on that. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, is that controversial here? You guys are okay with that, right? All right. Yeah. Anyway, this goes to things like morality, things like justice. 
right? Things, the way that we think about the world is affected by culture. And you actually live, all of us, each of us lives in a number of cultures at once. We live in the culture of the whole world, which is getting uh, closer to one another. Cultures are very different, but with the internet and with sort of, as, as the scripture talks about, knowledge increasing, it's sort of more and more the same. You live with the culture in the United States. We have cultures in different states, like t- Tennessee and Washington. For instance, in Washington, if you want to, you can go drive down the street to a store, just looks like a nice normal store, and you can buy pot and just smoke it for fun, right? Like that's, That was a weird thing when I went back there. And just drug dealers, they just do it legally, right? Just, if you want some pot, isn't this illegal? No, it's not. Here in Tennessee, you go to jail if you sell pot. I know, because I was an attorney here, I represented some of you, Preston. (laughs) Obviously, I didn't represent Preston, he couldn't afford me. Uh. (laughs) Well, that's the difference, right? There's differences in family cultures. The, the Arwoods uh, and, and us, we kind of raised our kids together uh, in a lot of ways. They were very similar in age. And so we would go out to eat a lot. Not, I don't, I'm not really into that, as you can tell, kind of fit, but Rusty likes to eat out a lot. And so we go out to eat, and we had very different cultures with our kids. For me, kids eat what I tell them they can eat when I tell them they can eat it, right? And if they order off a menu, they get to say the thing on the menu. I will have a double cheeseburger, and then they get a double cheeseburger. We don't, we don't mess around with a lot of other stuff here. Just like, that's what they're serving, you get that. Not the Arwood family culture. I don't know if you've ever been out with them. But their kids each get to do whatever comes into their head. I mean, like crazy. I'll have the pizza with no sauce on the pizza, but bring the sauce on the side. I want you to sing a song while you're bringing it. It's on a bed of pickles. And like there's this whole thing. And every kid does that. Like their own separate thing, like that's what they want. I don't care what they want. They're kids, right? That's my culture. That's my culture. Right? You know, I can't, when I, I go out with them, the whole time they're ordering, I can't make eye contact with the waiter. I'm just like, then you get to Rusty's thing, what he wants, and Laura, it's just, it gets, it gets a little out of hand. My culture, the Robinson culture is, you eat what we say, and if you wanted to order something like that, then you get hungry, because you don't get to do that, Right? Rusty's culture, the Arwood culture, is get whatever you want, no matter how crazy it is, no matter whether we make the waiter cry or not. That's what we're doing, right? (laughs) Different cultures, different cultures, right? And that's okay. They can be that way. I might think it's a little odd. You might all think it's a little odd, right? I'm just saying. (laughs) But they can do it the way they want to do it. That's okay. That's their family culture. But the question I asked at the beginning was, what are we supposed to do as a church when it comes to the culture? And when I say the culture, I'm talking about secular culture. I'm talking about the culture of the world, the culture that you work in, that, you, that your neighborhood is in, the culture that, that you play softball in, the culture that all your friends, all the things you do, the culture you watch on the news, the culture that infects every television show or entertainment thing that you watch is infected by this culture that's pushing on you a worldview, a bunch of ideas that they want you to accept, and the kinds of behaviors that they want you to accept and think are normal. That's the culture, okay? We talk about the world in the scripture a lot. It talks about the world and the difference between the kingdom and the world, right? The world has a culture. The world has a culture, and it's pushing it on you. The world, of course, is run by the devil. He, he's the one doing the world thing. 
We are not. We're doing the kingdom thing. We're run by Christ. And so there's this, there's this natural problem there with who we are and who the culture is. And so we've got to figure out what the Bible says about that. We do pretty good with like family culture. You can go to many, many, many different like marriage seminars and learn about marriage. You can go, you can go to seminars and, and learn about how to raise your kids. You can do all the family culture stuff. We, we do pretty good with that. But with how do we engage the culture, we actually have, there's people who read the same book and have come up with a lot of different ideas about how a Christian and the church, who we are as a church, how we interact within the culture. It gets to the very heart of who we are as God's saints, as the church. We are saved, baptized believers, and we have a mission. And that mission has to do with the culture. I've talked about this, this thing a lot with Acts Church, but never with True Life Church, and, and that's this question. Have you ever considered why when we see people get saved, they don't immediately just go to heaven, right? Because think about it. You're, you're in the world. You're in sin. You get saved, right? Your sins have been forgiven. You love Jesus. He loves you. We know that. We know he wants to be with us. We want to be with him. Why aren't we just gone? Why would we stay in this nasty place? Not Tennessee is not a nasty place. Why Portland, if you guys, we're right outside of Portland. If you want to see a nasty place, go to Portland. Anyway, the, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about being in the world, being in the world. Why are we still here? And there's an answer to the question. There's an answer. Paul writes something about this. This is in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. He's talking about, about whether he should stay or should he go. Should he stay here or should he die? Which is better? He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So it's better to be in heaven, to be with Jesus. We love him. So why are we still here? Because it's more needful for us. You are here for each other and for the world. That's what you're here for. That's why you're not already with Jesus, is because you are here to engage the culture with the gospel. Listen to this, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I hope you guys know that verse. Very important. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are to walk in the good works that have been prepared beforehand for us. That is why you're here. If you're wondering, why am I here? You are here to walk in the good works that were, that were prepared beforehand for you. God has known you since, since before he said go on this whole thing. And he had prepared for you good works to do. And those are what you're called to do. We get very worked up in our society and in the church with things like getting married, having kids, especially here in Tennessee. You got families in this church that have more kids than most entire church programs in Washington, in like one family. That's good. That's good. I like that. I don't know if you all just don't have televisions or what's going on. I know that things close a little earlier because I, I came in really late last night. I wanted to get something to eat. Rusty says, there's nothing open. I said, that's why you have so many kids. There's nothing to do here. <laughs> 
We get focused on getting married, on having kids, on our careers, right? We get focused on the cool things that we can do, going on that next vacation, getting the next iPhone or car or house or whatever. Whatever the Lord's done for us and the blessings we have, we get focused on those things as if they were the primary, but they're not. They're the secondary. They can all be good things. Marriage is a great thing. I've been married for 23 years. It's been amazing. It's a great thing. My kids love them. Great. Wonderful. Like the car, like the whole thing, like all of that. All these things that God has blessed with, great. But they're not the primary thing. They're not the primary thing. Christ has told us what our primary calling is. We actually have this out on the wall in our lobby at Acts Church in really big letters so that we do not forget what we're about. This is what it says, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's the Great Commission. That is our first call to action. The Great Commission. You are to what? Let's, let's start at the beginning. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbors yourself. How do you do that? In the context of the Great Commission. In the context of making disciples for Christ, baptize them as we just saw, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. That's our job. We're to put that into action. That's the gospel in action every day in every way. Many, many ways, many, many gifts within the body of Christ. We're to win people to Jesus Christ. We're to make disciples. Now, that might be for you. That might be at work. That might be at home. That might be at the softball game. That might be with your buddies that do this or with your friends that do that. Whatever it is, wherever you are, always the first thing is this call to make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the Christ's commandments. For lo, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. You gotta, that's got to run in your mind because it's what keeps you on course. It's what keeps you on course. Everything else for my video game playing friends is a side quest. Okay? If you're a video game player, knock it off. It's just a waste of your time. Just by the way, young men, the girls are not going to like you when you're on the little mm, thing all day. Okay? Just like, I don't, just get a, play a sport. Gosh, darn. I know, I know. It's, they're great. Do what you want to do. Uh, anyway, no, listen. Let's look at a few ways that, Christ, that Christians have answered the question of how Christ followers should engage the culture. I don't know. These categories I got from Jimmy, the three categories, I don't know where they came from, so I can't quote where they came from. He reads books and stuff, so they probably came from one of those. That's my guess. <laughs> First one is Christianity against culture. Christianity against culture. And, here, and here's the, the kind of couple ways that that works. One is the bomb shelter Christian. Okay, You, you get saved, your family gets saved, and you just, boop, you isolate all your friends are now only Christians. You only do things with the church. You only watch movies with Kirk Cameron in them. You know, that whole thing, right? <laughs> that whole thing. Some of those are good. Some of them, you know. Uh. But that's your life, right? You, you're away from everybody else. You are separate. You don't want to be involved in that. You're basically like a hermit. You're against culture. You're afraid of that. You don't want to be around them. That's, that's not your thing. Then there's sort of the other side of that, which is the culture warrior, and the Christian nationalist. And I'm going to tell you what those things mean. You may have a different idea of what those things mean and what they do mean. When I say culture warrior, I don't mean somebody who wants to see the culture be godly. That's called being a Christian. Obviously, we want to see the culture be godly. When I talk about culture wars, I'm talking about the people who are against other people, clearly and vocally 
making other people believe that they're against them, that they hate them, and people who want to use the law in order to force people into Christianity and Christian living. Okay? That's a culture warrior. And, and a Christian nationalist is like that. A Christian nationalist is not a Christian who's patriotic. If you're an American and you're a Christian, you should be those things. That's, that's not what a Christian nationalist is. A Christian nationalist comes out of something called dominionism. Okay? In the 70s, this was really big. I'm going to step back and kind of give you the picture of what this is because this is becoming more and more prominent. Um, dominionism starts with an eschatology or a theology of the end times, of what's going to happen at the end, that says that we are going to usher in the kingdom of God by making all states, all countries, all institutions Christian, and then Jesus, once it's all good, he's going to be like, oh, they finally did it. Okay, I'll come back. That's their mindset about how it works, okay? So they believe that, and so their mindset is, I've got to do that. I've got to change all the, all, the, all the countries, all the cities, all the states. I've got, to, I've got to make them into these Christian places where Christianity is the law. So some of them, depending on the flavor, actually would like to bring back the Mosaic law and all its punishments. So kids, if you're in here and you're disobedient to your parents, we got the rocks outside. We will take you out because that's, you know, there's some stuff in here that has nothing to do, if you've read that, that's not the thing anymore. We don't live in a theocracy. We will when Jesus comes back. We're not bringing him back by us taking over. He's coming back to take over in his own power. If you read the way it works, that's the way it works, okay? But they don't, they don't believe that, so they believe we're going to usher him in. That's what Christian nationalism is. It's just a form of dominionism, which buys into that idea and then wants to do that. So what we're talking about is taking over and using the guns, because that's what government is. Government is guns that can make people do stuff. At the end of the day, that's, their, that's what they're able to do. The government bears a sword, and they want to take that power and force everyone into Christianity. Now, if you've done much history, you realize that that's actually a Muslim thing, not a Christian thing. It's the Muslims who, who convert or kill. It's the Muslims who enforce religious law on the society at large by the threat of the sword. It's not Christians. It's never the, we've never compelled people by force to follow all the moral teachings of Jesus. We teach them to obey all that he has commanded. We don't shoot them if they don't. Okay, That's, that's the Christian nationalism, dominionism sort of movement. And there are actually a lot of Christians who have been kind of caught up in that. So that's Christianity against culture. Okay? It, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. It's not, it's not biblical at all. You will not see Jesus, the apostles, Paul, Timothy, Titus. You won't see any of these people on that mission. None of them. Jesus could have done it. He's feeding 5,000 people. They're getting the free bread. I bet that was some good bread too. And he could have said, okay, get up. Let's go take back Jerusalem from the Romans. They, they, would, they were waiting for him to do that, by the way. He could have done it. That wasn't his thing. He didn't come for that. He came to save. He did not come for that reason, nor did he command us to do that. It's not a Christian thing to do that. The next group, Christianity with culture. This group of folks is, I think, at least as common, probably more common than the Christianity against culture folks. And their idea is they kind of want to mirror the culture in the church. So you see this in the more extreme versions of like the seeker-sensitive movement, where church 
You, you get rid of the word church, you get rid of the word sanctuary, you get rid of the word bulletin, you get rid of the word, you get rid of everything that has to do with the idea that it's a church, and you try to more and more and more make it, you're trying to make it uh, attractional or available, but what happens is you start taking out all the things that actually make it what it is, as if people walk into this building shaped like this and don't know they're in a church, right? Shh, it's not church, it's Jesus thing. You know, I mean, it's, th- that's what they do, right? They're trying to do that. That's, that's actually the least of it. It gets much worse. You go all the way over into like progressive Christianity, which is not Christianity, right? What happens is, is they, they end up starting to justify, there's, there's, or antinomianism, which means against law, believing that we don't have any moral duties as believers, that all that's gone, it's all under grace, do whatever you want. And progressive Christians tend to sort of take scripture, and what happens is they go, well, that doesn't really mean that, and that doesn't really mean that, and they start justifying all kinds of things so they can accept more and more and more of what the world and the culture want. And they become more and more and more like the world and the culture. And eventually, the Bible is your truth and not their truth. That's what happens. If you guys have ever been to the hardware store and looked for paint, you have a color, you have white, you have whatever. And it's not just white. That would be easy. White. There's 800 whites, right? Eggshell surprise, and you know, it's going on and on. Got all these whites, right? So I want you to picture for a second that Christianity is the color purple, and the culture is the color white. Now, what happens to the color purple as it starts to want to be more like with the culture? What happens is it starts to take on white, and so it becomes lighter purple, then Concord grape, then Vineyard Passage, these are real colors, I got them off the internet. (laughs) Vineyard Passage. Then Sensual Senses, real color. That's the one that's pretty white, so think about Sensual Senses. Anyway, you get more and more until what you've done is you've gone from shades of purple to shades of purplish white to shades of white to the point where if you come from outside and you go, this is Christian white and this is culture white, and you go, like me, if my wife was like, can't you see the difference between these two colors? I'd be like, no, because they're the same thing right? At some point, it's all just white, and you've lost everything that made you purple. And so that's Christianity with culture. They just take it on, and they take it on, and they take it on, and they justify, and they change the scripture, and they start not believing in the scripture, and then it becomes not authoritative, and then it becomes a thing that sits over there while they talk about nonsense and start calling evil good and good evil. That's what happens when you go Christianity with culture. You just become the culture with a little Jesus flavor, There's a third group. But before I get to the third group, I want to tell you why I think people are so drawn to the first two groups. Because the model that we have is a model that includes persecution. The biblical model is a model that includes persecution. And both of these things are ways to avoid persecution. Whether you're running from it and you're church in a bomb shelter, or whether you are a dominionist and you say, let's get everybody together. They can't persecute us. We'll persecute them. We'll make them do what we want them to do, whether you do that or whether you just go, I can't, I, they won't persecute me if I just become more and more and more and more and more like them. I start saying the same things they say. And then I say that Jesus is okay with the things they say, which is just vile. It's demonic when they do that. And I'll just go more and more and more, and I'll avoid persecution. Both of these are ways to deal with the persecution problem. In the third way, unfortunately, you cannot get away from the persecution problem, but it's actually the biblical way, and that is to be in and for culture, in culture and for the salvation of your friends, your neighbors, your family. 
Let's read John. This is uh, chapter 17, verses 14 through 23. It's in the New Testament, Preston, if you're looking. She can help you find it. All right. Start in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, this is important, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, or separate them, right? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Sent us into the world. And he says, I do not pray. This is him praying, by the way, for the apostles, and then you're going to see who else. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you know who that group is? That's us. We're the ones who believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles passed down for the last 2,000 years. He's praying for you right here. He says that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What happens when we're one? When we're one, the world believes that the Father sent the Son. That's what happens. That's the consequence of being one. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, you and me, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So what's, what's the first thing here? The first way that we deal with the culture is about who we are as a church. One. Unified. In one accord. One God, one king, one baptism, one savior, right? We are one. We have one mission. And when we're unified as one, and that requires an awful lot of love and forbearance and forgiveness, bearing with one another, lifting each other up, mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice, all that. But when we do that, what happens is the world starts to actually believe that the Father sent the Son and that he loves us as he loved them, and that he loves them too. That's what happens when you do it. There is no better apologetic, okay? And apologetics is just like the defense of the faith. We can talk about how atheists are wrong about this, and that. but there's no better apologetic than the love that you have for one another and your oneness in each other and in Christ. Nothing else moves the heart of man in the same way. He uses you to draw people to himself in oneness. We are in the world. He sent us into the world, but we are not of the world. We are in the world's culture. We are not of the world's culture. We are to be one in God, showing the world and the culture who Jesus Christ is. Sent to the Father, died for our sins, rose on the third day, and that, that the Father loves him, loves us, loves them, that it might draw them. That's what Jesus prays for us. It's powerful. That's powerful. I love Jesus. I want to do what he wants me to do. I want to follow the call that he has for my life. I believe in him, and I trust him, and I have faith in him. I could not stand here or at Acts Church or anywhere else and preach the word of God without the power of the Holy Spirit because I trust him for that. 
You can do nothing. I can do nothing without him. And when we do what he's called us to do, we can do it in power and in strength. He sent us into the world and into the culture to show who God is and his love for them and what he can do. You have a real mission. You have a real mission to season the world with the love of God. That's the model we saw with Jesus and the apostles. Some people, they struggle. They're like, what am I, what am I here for? What are we going to do? You know, what's my life about? Here's the thing. This is what it's about. This is what it's about. That you're one, that in Christ you live, and that you bear fruit. And that fruit is your own repentance, the repentance of others, drawing people to Jesus Christ that they might be saved so that we can be with Christ eternally. That's your fruit. That's your fruit. That's the model we saw. Recognize this. The culture was changed with not a shot fired. The culture was changed because Christ followers followed Christ and did it well. And we saw everything that, you don't even realize how much of our culture is completely infiltrated with Christian morality. The world before Christ was despicable. They take, if they don't like the uh, child they had, like I was born with a club foot. It was like this when I was born. They put a little thing on it and it's fixed. But back then, they would have thrown me in the street on the trash pile. And that was normal. It's like, we don't want this kid. Here he goes. You know what the Christians did? They picked those kids up. Because if they didn't, they would die of exposure. Or worse, somebody would take them and make them sexual slaves, things like that. The Christians just started doing that. And eventually, you know what happened? The Roman Empire changed the law. You couldn't do that anymore. I could go thing after thing. Where do you think all the hospitals come from? Where do you think educating normal people came from? Educating women. Where do you think that all of the things that have pushed society closer and closer to this have come from? They've come from Christians, but not from swords or guns. They've come from the oneness of Christ's church, pressing into the gospel, marching against the gates of hell, and setting captives free. That's what changes the culture. And it has done so. The entire world has changed through it. The apostles of Jesus Christ lived for and loved each other, lived for and loved the unbeliever. Even though the unbeliever was their enemy based on their beliefs. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this. I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You want to not keep company with these people? You got to die. You got to be out of the world because if you're in the world, you're with them. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Or outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He's saying two things. Two things. One, he's saying that the person in the world, the unbeliever, you're in that. You're in that and with them in that. Not in their sin, but in the world and the culture with them. In order to get away from them, you'd have to die. You'd have to go out of the world. So you're in that, and your job is not to judge them. God, God has already judged the world. That's already happened. Judgment is coming. It's not a good thing. We want as many people as possible to avoid judgment by knowing Jesus, right? 
But that's the world. Then there's the actual culture war, that the only one we hear about. That's the culture war in the church. That's where we say if you're going to be an unrepentant, rebellious, constant sinner in any of these ways, that we as a church have to come around to bring you back. And if you won't be brought back, we're, we have to actually do judgment within the church and keep you out. This church has had to do that, unfortunately. A number of times where somebody has been an unrepentant, rebellious sinner who's rejected what God has called them to and still wanted to call themselves a brother or a sister. That's, that's a real thing. That's the only culture war I'm aware of. That's the culture war, the only culture war I saw Jesus ever fighting. It was the hypocrites, the Pharisees. It was the religious leaders of the day who were being hypocritical, they were being oppressive. It was those who turned the temple, the house of prayer, into a den of thieves that he got the whip out on. You know who it wasn't? It wasn't Caesar. It wasn't the government. That's not who it was. Judgment for us begins at the house of God. 1 Peter 4, 17, the first part of the verse. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. we got to keep our own stuff clean. As to the world, that's not our job within the world. Our job within the world is not judgment. Our job within the world is the gospel, is the Great Commission. We see who Jesus battled. It wasn't governments. It was those who would harm the people who were trying to come to him. He was going after those in the world, the lost, the taxpayer, the prostitute. That's who he was going for. The me, who I was when he came and got me. If all Christians had said, you as an unbeliever are a vile, horrible thing and God hates you and I want to force you to do whatever, would I have been drawn to him? We need each other in that way. Let's read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5. And I want to just walk through what this sort of looks like. We want to see the model for how we are to be and how we are to be within the culture. Let's check this out. Because Jesus shows us the way. It just isn't necessarily an easy way. All right. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's that? That's those of us who recognize our absolute, total, all-the-time need for Jesus. We're poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit. We got nothing without him. We got nothing without his forgiveness. We have nothing without the empowerment that he gives us. Nothing. If we live in that, we're blessed. We're blessed. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You are going to mourn. You live in a fallen, sinful world. But we have a comforter, and the Holy Spirit does that too. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the meek? Let me tell you what meekness is. It sure is not weakness. You, as a Christ follower, are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have the power of God. Jesus, when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore. He actually has given you, he has delegated to you the ability to walk around in his name. You're powerful in him. But meekness is power under control. Power with gentleness. That's what he had. He could have at any time just been like, these people, it's gone. Done with this world. He could have done that anytime he wanted. He had all the power. He has all the power. It was under control, and it was gentle, and it was calm, and it was bringing good news to those who needed good news. 
That's meekness. That's who inherits the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Listen, Christ follower, you have got to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not only because it's the thing that will actually fulfill you, but mostly because you love Jesus and he's called you to it and you want to please him. If you have a husband or a wife and you don't ever live in such a way to want to please them, I promise you, they don't like you, okay? Things aren't going well for you. You may not realize that. If you have a friend and you never want to please them, if you're in a relationship, you never want to please them. It's not good. We want to please, right? That's the whole thing about loving. We want to please our parents, our children, whoever it is. We want to please them. You want to please God? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, which does please him. And you can't, I mean, come on. How are you going to have any effect on the culture if you're not seeking righteousness? If you're not seeking righteousness, guess who you're like? The world. The culture. I'm not going to see any difference for you. I'm not going to see any difference for you. If you're the kind of person who is living constantly in fear, in anxiety, worried about what's going to happen, you don't look any different than the world. They're going to wonder what Jesus is really doing for you. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you have meekness, power under control, they're going to look to you and be like, that's what I want. And then they're drawn to Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He talks about it all in here. Where does sin start? It starts in the heart. You've got to get to the point where your heart is pure, where when you look at a human being, regardless of what they believe, what team they root for, what political party they voted for, whatever, that your heart is drawn to them to see them saved. Because if that's where you start with a pure heart, the gospel is going to pour out of you because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's going to happen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers, that doesn't sound like culture warriors. That doesn't sound like people who basically are spewing anger and hatred at those who are just doing what of course they're doing. I don't know if you know this. Unbelievers, they act like unbelievers. It's a whole thing, okay? And you once were, and you acted like that, and he saved you. If you're going around, I can't believe these people. I, they're trying to blah, blah, blah. If that's who you are, you're, you're not a peacemaker. Nobody's drawn to that. What are you trying to do? What's a peacemaker? You want them to have peace with God through the cross, right? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what you want. You're a peacemaker. You've got to be able to draw people to yourself. Now let's hit it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's going to happen if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you get it? Persecution. Why? Because this is a fallen world. It's a broken world. And if you live in it, you're going to experience the persecution that comes with righteousness. And you are blessed. You're blessed. What's it say next? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, and cancel you, and say you're a bigot, and say you're a terrible person. You're the worst. You're like a Nazi. You're blah, 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 blah. All the things that come, all the things that come out of their mouth when somebody says, I lovingly stand by what the scripture says about who I am, about who God is, about who my family is, about who you are, about the truth. When you say that and they, and they, they just spitefully 
use you and revile you, you're blessed. You're blessed because they've, they've done that against you falsely for Christ's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What did they persecute the prophets for? For telling the truth. That's what they're going to persecute you for. But what has Christ showed us about telling the truth? We tell the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. Not in anger, not in divisiveness, in love. The divisiveness is already there. Christ brings a sword, okay? To some, he is the aroma of life, and to others, the aroma of death. To that, that group, they're going to persecute you. It doesn't say, blessed are those who persecuted, for they will all get ARs and go and take vengeance on the persecutors. Nope, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. You're supposed to love your enemy, right? To do good to those who spitefully use you. You got to deal with persecution. This is what it says. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What does salt do? It preserves and it seasons. That's what it does. How are you to interact with the world? Like salt. When salt gets put on a, a nice brisket, okay, you put the salt on there. It doesn't become brisket. It's still salt. It's still salt. It doesn't, it doesn't become something else. It remains what it is, but it preserves and it seasons, gives flavor, takes something that doesn't have much flavor without it and gives it flavor. That's what salt does. The Holy Spirit is the restrainer. The Holy Spirit that if you're a Christ for you have in you is the restrainer of the evil of this world. When he takes the restraining force out of the world, it's going really, really badly. You can turn to the end of this book and read about it. It's not a great thing. It's real bad. Okay, It gets real bad because the Holy Spirit is actually restraining. And you're seeing it. You're seeing evil press against, trying to bust out. It's, it's getting crazy. And you know what's restraining it? The Holy Spirit. And who has the Holy Spirit? Us. When the church is taken and the Holy Spirit goes, the Holy Spirit's been with the church since Pentecost, in power. When he goes, okay, we're going to let it go for a minute. Soon as, as soon as he stops that restraining, things go worse than you could even possibly imagine. That's you. You are being used of the Lord to preserve, to preserve culture so that you can still preach the gospel so that you can still be effective, so you can still show people that most of the things that they believe, they would not believe if it had not been for Jesus Christ. Most of the things they actually think are right, they think are right because of Jesus Christ. And where they're wrong, yes, show them truthfully in love. But in love, preserve and season the culture. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What are they supposed to see? Your anger? Your frustration? You're running away? You're being just like them? Nope, your good works. And what does that make them do? Glorify your Father in heaven. How are you supposed to be within the culture? As a light. The light doesn't do any good if it's not in the room. Okay? It has to be there. We have to be in the culture to be being a light to the culture. We're separated. We're called out. We are the church. We're different. We're not friends with the world. James 4.4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's not us. We're not friends with the world. 
But we love those in the world. We love those in the world because Christ died for those in the world. And we love him. And so we are a light. Separate, but something that shows people who God is. That's what Jesus is using you for. You have a powerful, incredible mission from God. You should wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm so honored that today, yep, my back hurt. The older I get, the harder it is when I get up. But you know what? Every day I get up until he takes me home, I get to live out the Great Commission. Every single day, I get to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ in this world, in his power, trying to live this way within the culture. I'm not taking any shortcuts. I'm not running away. I'm not going to take on the culture and start being like them, God forbid. I'm not going to fight them and try to take them over and make them believe what I believe at the end of a gun. What I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to do what Jesus did. I'm going to preach the gospel in everything that I do. And that's what he's called you to do, to be a light to the world. I'm out of time. Um, I have a little bit more, but I want to say this before I end. If you are not a Christ follower and you're in here this morning and you think to yourself, I would like to have a purpose. I believe that God loves me. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that, God, that he's raised from the dead, and I'm willing to make him Lord of my life. You can have this. You can be today on this great mission and commission. Today, there's nothing stopping you. Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you want to do that today, come see one of the elders. Come see Rusty, see Preston. Come see one of the pastors here. Come see me. We would love to walk you through becoming a Christ follower. Then you will have the same mission that those of us in this room who are Christ followers already have, and that is to be salt and light, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, facing persecution with confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is all for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he is drawing people to himself. For lo, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray.